Hello, and welcome to Talking and Shoal, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis recording from Little Rock, Arkansas this month. Woohoo! Hey, how you doing, Tamar? I'm good. I miss you. And Zahava Stadler is joining us in northern New Jersey. Hey, guys. You know, Mimi, I'm going to be in Boston this weekend. I was going to try and see you, but now you're not going to be there. Well, I... Um... Maybe I've left it so that it's a little bit cooler for you. I don't know. There's been quite a heat wave everywhere, though. So Yeah. Is it crazy in, um, in Little Rock right now? It is the sort of heat that you just don't want to go outside until the sun has set. And even then, it's 90. So. Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> so sorry. Um, well, I'm so happy to have uh, both of you here today. We are, um, so first of all, I should apologize. We actually recorded this podcast last month, but I had a recording snafu. My part of the recording did not record. So we are, we, we took a month off and we are back better than ever. Um, and so this month on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the rebirth, or is it even a rebirth, of Jewish delis as foodie havens, um, and just about Jewish food and, and what's going on in the Jewish food moment right now. And for our second topic, we'll be talking about Nishikot Be'ivrit, or Hebrew Kisses, a short documentary hitting film festivals this summer. All right, so Mimi, this first topic was was your pick. So tell us about what you were thinking. Yes. So, um, right. So this month we're talking about a not so new trend of gourmet food, even high end Jewish deli style places where you can get something like a chicken liver mousse on a house made rye with pastrami onion jam. And yes, that is a direct quote um, for the low, low price of $13 for a small plate. And um, these are places like Russ and Daughters Cafe in Manhattan or Abe Fisher in Philly, Mamala's in Boston, Saul's Deli in, Brook- in Berkeley. You get the point. Um, and we're really excited this month because we have Liz Alpern, the co-founder of the Gefilteria. Um, Liz is a cook, recipe taster, educator, and entrepreneur. Um, she's also a faculty member in the Culinary Entrepreneurship Program at the International Culinary Center in New York City. She's been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 list for food and wine and was named one of the forward 50 for 2016. So Liz, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us about where we are in the Jewish food scene right now. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So exciting. Um, you know, I wanted to say really before we dive in that, um, as Tamar mentioned in the intro, this, I was pushing for this topic on Jewish food, in particular Ashkenazi food, um, and where it stands for a while. And I want, I want to call you Tamar and Zahava out because you were a little bit reluctant. And I, I want to dig into that. Like, what, what was holding you back or what's the reluctance? Yeah, I want to know. What's the reluctance? <laughs> well, on my part... I think that, first of all, I had felt um, like I hadn't really sampled much of this high-end Ashkenazi food scene. So Liz, the gefilteria is kind of an exception here, but but most of them don't have strict kosher supervision. Um, and as True. a strict kosher keeper, I, I haven't actually had much access to this phenomenon. Um, and also, 
And, you know, I'm sure you'll be happy to disabuse me of this notion, but it feels a little bit like lipstick on a pig here. Like, I think that um, I haven't had a whole lot of love for um, the Ashkenazi food of my heritage. I think it comes up mostly in stories about how my mother really didn't want to try the pacha that my grandmother was serving when she met her mother-in-law for the first time. Um, Stuff like that. I don't think I had a lot of heritage. Um, And the grandparents I grew up knowing were both American born and American raised. So maybe I didn't have it as much um, in my life. Um, But I've also had this kind of skepticism about whether Ashkenazi food is really a Jewish thing. Um, And so that's something that I'd like to dig into a little bit more with you guys. That was a lot. That was a lot. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) I'm prepared with answers and responses for all of that, except I don't even think we're going to have time to tackle it all. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear it. Tamar, what, what's your deal? What's your deal, Tamar? <laughs> <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I was asked that. Uh, yeah, well, I guess my deal is also that I've had, like, a lot of pretty bad traditional Ashkenazi food, so it doesn't leave me, like, super nostalgic for it. I was... Um, at my in-laws in the last year and my mother-in-law made kashka varnishkas but she was like I have to make it and you have to eat it but that doesn't mean it's good (laughs) and it was like well but why (laughs) like like I I have spent a lot of time in the decades since my mom died really thinking about like what are the things that I feel like I really want to like keep doing this and what are the things where I can be like oh, actually, I don't enjoy this. And, like, it does make remind me of my mom, but, like, there are other things that I can do that I do enjoy that remind me of my mom, and maybe I should just, like, focus on those. And that's kind of how I feel about, like, traditional Ashkenazi food. Like, I like a good kogel. I'm happy to, like, focus on kogels and just, like, never eat kashka varnishkas ever again because it's not very good. Um, And I feel like... Also, I'm a vegetarian, so a lot of the renaissance has happened around meat products, I would say. So that makes me, like, slightly less enthusiastic about it. Um, But on the other hand, I do get a kick out of the kitsch factor um, sometimes. Um, And I feel like when the stuff is good, it's like, you know, really blow your hair back good. It's just that... As a vegetarian, that's not that often. Yeah. Well, Liz, maybe you can respond a little bit. I, I, I know that was a ton of um, baggage that we all carry. I, I'll, I'll Wait, but I want to hear why you did want to talk about this, Mimi. Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, I guess I feel like when I think about Jewish food, I think Tamar, I also was thinking, I typically think of like not great food, but sort of comfort food and that's okay. And what was exciting to me in particular, when I lived in Philly, I think my favorite restaurant there, and maybe even my favorite restaurant still is Abe Fisher, which took the things that I love best about Ashkenaz food, like particularly pickled fit like herring and all sorts of like pickled items um and made it really good 
and paid attention to quality and sourcing and bringing together flavors in exciting new ways, but but authentic flavors to that comfort food. Um, and I just realized like, oh, it doesn't have to be, herring doesn't have to just be the thing that I eat at breakfast because it's that's the only time that it's available, but like it, it's also this delicious food um, that you can do interesting things with. Uh, and I, I always talk about herring, but for me, it's, it's a larger picture um, as well. Well, I appreciate that. That was, that, was, that was an excellent summary of the kind of conversation I have most days of my life, defending my work in the realm of gefilte fish, uh, because <laughs> uh, everybody's points were so, were so valid. So I, I really hear it. Um, you know, I think that um, the number one thing that um, draws people away from Ashkenazi cooking is, um, is basically industrialization. So traditional Ashkenazi food is quite delicious when it's good, and I love that when it's good, it's so good affirmation. Um, but a lot of the food that we eat now and associate now with Ashkenazi food is an Americanized version of Ashkenazi food. And like anything that becomes Americanized, it sort of goes through this industrial food ringer and is not so great anymore. So uh, a lot of what, um, what my work is with gefilteria and with, with, with what our work is with gefilteria is we always say we look back to look forward. So we go way back. Like I've spent a bunch of time in Eastern Europe and we read old Yiddish stories um, and really like think about the elemental ingredients that make good Ashkenazi food so good. And a lot of those ingredients are, are not really available to us and weren't even available necessarily to our grandparents depending on when they came. So the, one of the best examples, right, is mushrooms. So mushrooms were a flavor agent that makes Ashkenazi food so good, good mushrooms. And if you go to Eastern Europe, you will get these mushrooms that are like, wow, oh my gosh, like I want to eat everything just like cooked with these mushrooms. But in the U.S., when Jews came to the U.S., there was like the mushrooms were terrible, you know, and they actually imported them for a while, but that sort of fell off in, you know, the Americanization process. So it's like every dish that was made with mushrooms is that you have eaten is automatically 10 times worse than the authentic flavor of what it could be, or then it's like origin, right? Same thing with pickles, right? Like I love pickled food. I, I'm crazy about pickled food, but the traditional methods of pickling, which are just saltwater pickles, so no vinegar, no canning, none of that stuff, um, that kind of like people don't do it as much because you don't get as consistent results that way. Um, and people don't really have root cellars to like keep their pickles hanging out in. Um, and so people go for like the vinegar pickles, which are canned and much more, you know, consistent and easy to develop. So, um, so a lot of the foods that we eat just are, you know, they're sort of like not totally honoring the original flavors that make Ashkenazi food so good. So some of this moment that we're in is, is led by chefs who are saying, Oh, we will not settle for ingredients that aren't 
the best, right? We're not going to cook with mushrooms that aren't up to par. We're not going to make pickles that don't taste like the way that a pickle should taste. Um, and I certainly didn't grow up with, a, you know, all of my grandparents were from the United States too. So I didn't even discover this stuff until way later in life. Like I truly didn't either. So I have a very similar story. I grew up with like completely par, like okay Ashkenazi food. Um, I always loved it. Like I grew up, it was delicious, but it wasn't mind blowing. And now I would say it's like mind blowing when I make it. Um, and I will say that the other thing is, I think the kosher thing is totally an issue. And I think it is like a total challenge. And we could have a total other episode about how hard it is to open a kosher food business. And I'm sure you've already discussed this, but there's a, there's a lot of challenges um, for small, small businesses to start off being kosher. So I think it's like, that's a real shame. And I, I wish that would change. And I think there are some rumblings of change, but I think it is a shame because I think that a lot of people who would really appreciate and love and celebrate some of this chefier Ashkenazi food just don't have access to it. So I really honor that. But what I have found in my life doing this food over and over and over again, is that as much as people want to be consumers of it, people really shine when they're producers of this food. So when people go back into their homes and fill their homes with the smell of schmaltz of chicken fat, sorry, vegetarian, it's totally true. You know, it's like when your house smells like schmaltz or it smells like, you know, sauerkraut, you know, fermenting on your countertop, or it smells like, frankly, I love the smell of kasha varnish because I would eat that all the time, but you got to make it right. You got to do it right, you know? So when your home smells like that again, like that is the best because this food, Ashkenazi food, is home food. This is food that you eat at home. It's, it's, it's wonderful that it's in restaurants, and I've eaten in Abe Fisher, and that's great. And the deli is sort of the height of Jewish restauranting of all time. But frankly, when it's made at home and it fills your home, that's what it's really meant for. That's what this food really is. Um, and the last thing I want to say before we go deeper into all of this is that um, the biggest issue I think that <clears throat> comes up with Jewish food over and over and over again is that people only associate Ashkenazi food with holiday food. So it's like the heaviest, fattiest, brownest, richest version of Ashkenazi cooking, right? Whereas, like, there's so much Ashkenazi food that's, like, light and refreshing berries and, and pickled fish and sourdough breads, like the daily food of Ashkenazi Jews. And we don't even know about that food in America. Like, we don't even eat that food, right? So there's this whole other genre of that stuff. And I think as people are starting to discover some of those daily dishes, some of those lighter dishes, some of those kind of ingredient-forward dishes that aren't just, like, you know, a heavy stuffed cabbage that makes you need to take a nap. Like, I think as people are starting to realize that, that's also spawning some of this, some of these inspirational moments around Ashkenazi food. And I think that that distinction, I can't emphasize it enough, bringing in those, the 365 days a year, not just like Pesach and Friday night, you know, it's like eat Ashkenazi all the time and you'll discover so many secrets, so many layers, so much good stuff. So that's my basic pitch. And I'll talk about the the is it really Jewish piece, maybe later. <laughs> well, I, I really like that in particular because it, it reminds me that food is also about the feeling that you get I, when you're cooking it, after you, when you're eating it, after you've eaten it. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think a lot of the sort of bad rep of Ashkenazi food comes from that sense of, oh, if I eat that, I'm going to immediately fall asleep or I've been fasting all day. I'm going to like gorge myself at a breakfast and then like not want to do that again. <laughs> um, 
and and that doesn't have to be that doesn't have to be how we approach our cultural food. Um, so I guess we, I, I'm interested also to talk a little bit about specifically, Liz, since you've been traveling in Eastern Europe, is this Jewish? I mean, the Ashkenaz Jewish experience was wide, it was a broad spectrum of Eastern Europe um, and adopting food cultures, presumably from a lot of different neighboring countries. So um, I'm I'm wondering if, if we can all sort of delve into that a little bit more. Yeah. And can I just say, since I was the one to raise this initially, I'm willing to stipulate <laughs> that there are certain foods that exist at the intersection of culture and ritual. So I'm willing to stipulate, for instance, that like challah is, challah has a Jewish function. And when you combine the sort of evolution of the kind of bread that we've traditionally used for Shabbat and holiday meals, that that is a, that is a Jewish thing. Or that chillant, right, exists as a 24-hour stew because of the nature of the rules of not cooking on Shabbat and needing something that could slow cook over the course of the day. And so I think there are obvious exceptions, but when it comes to a lot of this, I just wonder, isn't pastrami just Romanian food? You know, what, what, and these things feel to me a little bit like the, the confluence of specific Eastern European countries and maybe poverty, um, you know, cheaper cuts of meat or needing to preserve or things like that. But I'm not sure what about them is is Jewish per se, except that these are places where a lot of Jews arrived in the United States at a certain point from those places. Anybody else want to weigh in on this question? It's a heavy question. I mean, I definitely have thought I have plenty okay. of thoughts, but I don't I don't want to be the only voice on this one. I think it's a good question. I mean, I feel like every food, you know. Food may have an, an origin from a certain country, but I do, I do feel like a lot of Jewish foods have had a very, like, heavy Jewish influence on them. And whether or not, like, it was, pastrami was Romanian food and then, um, you know, it became something else, like, it became, you know, associated with people who are Jewish, like, it is now. And, like, now, if you... Nobody would be on the street like, oh, pastrami is that's a Romanian thing. Like it, it, it is. It has made the full transition um, at this point, and I feel like you know everything comes from some somewhere else. But at a certain point, you do get to be like, well, this thing is our thing now, um, and and that doesn't you know. There's also been a lot of innovation that has been done by by Jews on things like pastrami and corned beef. And I learned this week that corned beef is called corn because corn used to be the word for all grain and including anything that was had grains, including salt. And so corned beef was just salted beef. That is crazy. Facts about meat from your favorite <laughs> vegetarian. I mean, I, I think there's also something to be said for the role of the Jewish deli bringing together various foods from the Eastern European experience. So the fact that you can get a pastrami on rye and challah French toast, um, you know, is it tells the story of of a certain population and 
and I don't know, I didn't know that pastrami is Romanian, but that's actually really cool to me because that says something about where our people have been. So, so I'm teaching a class right now. I'm at Brandeis University at this very moment, and I teach a class for two weeks to teenagers about Jewish food. And we call it culinary anthropology. And so we're in the kitchen half the time, and we're sort of in the classroom the other half the time. And we raised this question on the first day because it's basically the question, right? Like, what's Jewish food? How do you define it? Who's claiming what? How can you even do that? You know, and I mean, the fascinating thing is the teenagers themselves come to the conclusion very early on that um, it's pretty impossible to, to really define it. And that's because, um, as we know, every you know, we move, we change. Jews have moved all over. So there's sort of this, there's this kind of agreed upon understanding that there's two true Jewish foods. One of them being um, cholent, as you mentioned, because it's a ritual food. It was developed specifically because of the prohibition for cooking on the Sabbath. And um, it exists in cultures across the Jewish spectrum, right? So Sephardic cultures also have a form of, have a slow-cooked Sabbath stew. Ethiopian culture, Jewish cultures have a form of this. So there's like a, there's like a common agreement that cholent is a, an objectively Jewish food. And the other common agreement is that matzah is, a, is an objectively Jewish food because it's a Jewish ritual food. And so, you know, you could have a flatbread, a cracker kind of thing, but matzah has to be made a certain way. And so it, it really exists because of, Jewishness. Um, and so, so those are like two foods that if you talk to most food people, they'll sort of reference those two foods and everything else is pretty fair game, right? Like everything else is like this question of like, is it Jewish or not? And, um, I guess what I would argue is that, is that we, um, is that we, we claim the food and the food claims us all at once. And, um, and so when you go to Eastern Europe, you really, it, it can be a little bit of an identity crisis because all of these foods that you might've grown up with in New York and consider them Jewish foods like pickles or, um, what's another, or pierogi even like dumplings, right. Or blintzes. These are like everyday Polish foods, you know, all the time. I brought my mom to Poland and she was like, I love the food here. It's so good. And she never loves the food anywhere, but she just like felt so at home because it was Jewish food. And it was like amazing. Like she, she was like, I don't have any stomach aches. I was like, right. Because we're like basically eating the same exact food that we eat at home. It was amazing. But you know what I mean? But what happened to pickles in, in the United States is that Jews brought the pickles here. And so Jews are associated with pickles. And now here we are, I'm three generations in my great, great, my great grandparents came here. And so, you know, even my grandparents thought of pickles as Jewish in the United States. And so for me, pickles are Jewish, and in the United States, they sort of are, you know, and in, your, and in Eastern Europe, they're not. Um, they're totally, everybody makes pickles. Everybody knows how to make them. Everybody eats them all the time. Um, so I think it's interesting, like, why people think this is a relevant point, because to me, it's like, if it's Jewish to you, it's Jewish, right? Like, I don't know. I just, I'm like, I don't think that, to me, it's not that interesting of a question, um, like, or it's not that relevant to me and to my personal life because it's so Jewish to me. It's so inextricably Jewish to me that I can't even deny it. The one thing I'll say is that the other place that's very Jewish is the Jewish deli. The Jewish deli is 
an American Jewish institution. So pastrami is Romanian, but it was originally goose meat and it was served cold. So the, like, the way that we eat it on giant sandwiches is a completely Jewish American identity and it was influenced by Romanian Jews coming and seeing German delicatessens. And so they saw Germans curing pork. They obviously weren't gonna cure pork, so they were curing goose. And then it turns out beef was really cheap here. And so beef became the meat. And so the, the experience of the Jewish deli is totally and completely American Jewish. So I would say that that is like completely objectively Jewish. Um, and it's almost like pan-Ashkenazi, right? Like, it's, it's totally, like, cross-cultural Ashkenazi institution with a little, like, German, you know, contemporary German mixed in. Um, so the American deli is also, is just so Jewish because also it was, it was a gathering place for Jews. It was, like, the place where Jews would go outside of the home to eat together. Um, and that is really Jewish. It was called the secular synagogue. And this food, Ashkenazi food as we know it in the United States, is the food of the secular synagogue of the Jews. So to me, that's real Jewish, you know? So um, I recently brought a group of seniors, Jewish seniors, to one of these new wave Jewish delis, um, this one called Mamala's in Cambridge. And they were furious i'll give you sure anybody one guess why they were furious because the chicken liver is <laughs> was served hot <laughs> instead of cold <laughs> and it's it's not served the same way it's like a mousse or something i've eaten i've eaten mamas many times for for them it was the cost ah. the idea that you would spend right you know $18 on a bowl of matzo ball soup, or, you know, I can't quote the exact prices, but the cost was... Sure. I think it was almost insulting to them. Sure. The idea of, of paying this much. Now, some of these are probably people who would have complained about the cost, like, because it just was the thing to do, but I think there is something to be said about new wave... Um, Ashkenaz food and and the way that maybe this sort of poor people's food now that we're rethinking it and thinking more about um, about where we're sourcing where people are sourcing ingredients from in the processes um, that some people actually get get uh, priced out from their own food. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is it is really expensive. Um, but as an entrepreneur, like I happen to, and I know the people who own Mamala's super well. I was with them yesterday. Um, and I happen to know that they definitely don't charge more than they need to. Um, the economics of this business is really tough. And about um, somewhere around 20 years ago, lots and lots and lots of Jewish delis started closing. Lots of Jewish food institutions in general started closing. So delis, bagel shops, pickup shops, all types of stuff. Kosher, kosher style, not kosher. Tons, like by huge waves, particularly the Jewish deli though. And the reason was partially that a generation of um, deli owners was, you know, was getting older and retiring and hadn't encouraged their kids to take it on. Um, some of it was that deli food was going out of style. It was not considered healthy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but one of the other reasons was the economics of running a deli. Um, and I don't own a deli for a reason. And that's because it is not 
it, it is a very, very financially risky business to be in. Um, I mean, where Mamala's Deli is, is right in Cambridge. It's like Kendall Square. It's, 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 it, the, the real estate alone is crazy. Um, and so I don't think they could charge a cent less than they do to stay open. Frankly, I don't know how any restaurants stay open. I think it's in like cities like Boston or New York where real estate is so expensive. And even labor is really expensive if you want to pay people a fair wage. So I think it's just like a little bit of a different time. Um, I would say that um, the, the other thing, though, is that, um, you know, one of the reasons that the deli went out of style is because people perceived it as unhealthy because they were eating it all the time. And like this is not food that you should be eating all the time. You should not be eating a pastrami sandwich all the time. You shouldn't even probably be eating it like three, like like twice a week. That feels like excessive. So, so these restaurants are on par with um, going out to eat for nice, rich food that you probably shouldn't go out to eat with. So, eat all the time. So you have to save up a little bit. You know, it's a special occasion. Um, and I think that that again is another reason why I say get back in your kitchen and cook this food. And I know that most people don't cook pastrami. In my cookbook, the Gefilte Manifesto. Um, which I co-authored with my gefilteria co-owner, Jeffrey Yaskowitz. We do have a make it make your whole deli spread at home thing, which is awesome and an amazing thing to do. Only a few people will do it. Um, but part of why we want to empower people to cook at home is because it is too expensive to go out all the time for all this stuff. Like, I can't afford to do that, you know? And I, li- I work in this world. This is my professional job, and I can't do it all the time. So I say get back in the kitchen, buy, buy a huge bag of kasha, Huge bag of bow tie noodles. Get in there. Make those kasha varnish goods. Make it good, Tamar. Make it better. <laughs> make it good, no. Tamar. It's so good. I'm we just put Brussels make sprouts. Something that I actually like, guys. Oh. <laughs> kasha varnish Liz, I'd love to ask kasha you. Kasha varnish goods. You come. You want to make me your kasha varnish goods? I will try them. But short of that, no. Check out a recipe in Gefilte Manifesto. New recipes for old world Jewish foods. We got. Brussels sprouts in there. You got to love Brussels sprouts. I did want to ask you a cookbook question, Liz, because so I really appreciated the opportunity to to read through the Gefilte Manifesto. And I love the way you guys um, weave in your own experiences of uh, discovery of these foods and reconnecting with these foods with the recipes. And one thing that really struck me is that the first section of the book is arguably not food or it's not dishes right your section the first section of the book is called pantry staples but it's um uh farmer cheese and sour cream and spicy whole grain mustard and making your own schmaltz and gribbonus and it's so interesting to me that you start a cookbook with something that isn't a dish in its own right and i feel like there's a real thought process there it feels very intentional and i'd love to hear you explain it let me tell you, that was a very intentional book. It spent we spent two years thinking about those kinds of things, um, but that question that was really clear to us from the beginning that we were going to have a first chapter of pantry staples, and that was because um, of what I talked about in the very beginning of this conversation, which was that part of why Ashkenazi food has sort of gone downhill is because we are separated from those base elements that made it so good, from those building blocks, right? So Jeffrey always tells the story of his grandma, Ruth, who grew up in a small village in Poland, and and I've met her many times, and she's awesome. And when you ask her, what do you miss most about your childhood? She says, the butter, the taste of the butter. That's what she misses, not the plum tree that her, you know, that her mother used to pick plums from and make jam. And, you know, not, you know, she misses the butter because fresh butter was so good. 
Um, and so part of what we try and capture with pantry staples is that sort of empowering feeling that comes from A, doing things yourself that maybe you didn't think you could do before, like make butter or jam. Um, and then also kind of emphasizing how important the building blocks are. It's like when you use cheap olive oil versus really good olive oil, you can taste the difference in most recipes. I mean, that's real. Um, and so by making those ingredients yourself, you're, you're, you're automatically going to, you know, have a better end product. So, um, yeah, so making your own butter, making your own jam, rendering your own schmaltz, I find that to be like, I, that's like where, if you're a meat eater, I say that is the first thing you should do if you want to get into Ashkenazi cooking because to not know how to render chicken fat or poultry fat and to be cooking Ashkenazi food, I mean, you're literally, it's like the missing link. Like, that is the best thing. <laughs> that is what makes it so good. And somewhere along the way, we totally lost that. Um, and so um, the idea was part of our convincing you that this food is so good process is convincing you uh, to start with the basics. It's really good. So much fun to make them too. Making your own cheese. We just did it with our students the <laughs> other day. Their minds were pretty blown. Um, can I tell a story of uh, Ashkenazi food around the world? Absolutely. So my partner was born in a fishing village in Alaska, um, and his family were white, Jewish, only white people in the village. Every, everybody else in the village was uh, Native Alaskan. And his dad um, was, you know, friends with all of the, the guys in the village and really, really wanted to be invited to go on a hunting expedition with them. They hunted walrus. And he finally got invited to go hunt the walrus. And um, when they hunt the walrus, at the end, he got to take, like, they, they get, they save, like, the nicest stuff goes to the people who, the older people and the little kids and the poorest people get, like, the nicest part of the walrus. I have no idea what part <laughs> that is. And um, the, basically, it's, like, the neediest people get the best. And as you go down the line, like, you get less and less good parts of the walrus and my partner's dad ended up with the walrus's liver which was 60 pounds oh my god <laughs> whoa and so so my mother-in-law made fried liver and then um walrus knishes <laughs> for that just like got them through the winter in alaska wow um and i've always been like walrus liver knish <laughs> damn That's yeah hardcore. i have been, never heard of that i'm like i really you know there is definitely zero utility for a jewish native alaskan cookbook <laughs> but <laughs> but i really want um, so I really want to like distribute a recipe for walrus liver knishes because that really sounds amazing. Wow. That's incredible. That is quite an intersectional yeah, but moment. They really brought the shuttle to a different kind of shuttle. Awesome. Well, this conversation has definitely made me want to rethink my, my kitchen and also, um, hopefully do some looking into the, the everyday Ashkenaz food so it's not just a, a special times treat. Yeah, me too. I'm excited about like lighter Ashkenazi food because I definitely yep. think that is the, the sweet spot for me.
We got a whole chapter. Great. Gefilt Manifesto. <laughs> thank you cool. so much for joining well, us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. All right, Zahava, do you want to tell us about our second segment? Sure. So this month we watched a short documentary called Nishikot Be'ivrit, or Hebrew Kisses. And this is a film made by director Manya Lozovskaya, who um, completed the film as her final project as a film student at Sapir College in Israel. And the movie follows Manya, who was born in Russia, grew up in Russia, and came to Israel as a teenager. She is now engaged to Erez, who is a Jewish-Israeli man. And she goes through a conversion process to formalize her Jewishness so that their marriage can take place in Israel and be accepted by Erez and by his family. Um, so this movie is currently being submitted to film festivals around the world. And we uh, appreciate the distributors giving us a chance to take a watch. Um, I thought this movie was really interesting and not quite in the ways that I was expecting. I thought it would be a lot more about... Um, her experience with the conversion process in terms of her interactions with the rabbinate. Um, but I, I felt like it was actually more intimate than that in an interesting way. And I'm curious how you guys felt about it. Yeah, I thought that this movie was going to be a lot more about like the process, but it really felt like it was a lot more about one woman's experience and the rabbinate. And I mean, to be honest, even though it was like really about conversion, my main takeaway from this movie is like Manya needs to dump Erez yesterday <laughs> and like she should not be with this guy. He treats her terribly and is a not nice person who like she's like bending over backwards to be with him and he is like a passive aggressive jerk. Yeah, he does not come off well in this movie. Right. I have to wonder, like, did he see it? Or is she still with him? Or, like, I have a lot of questions about how you could stay with someone after some of his behavior. Um, but, um, but so, yeah. I mean, a lot of what I felt like I took away was was really about how toxic their relationship was, but also about how, like, Judaism is a thing that people can hang over your head if you live in Israel as a like you don't really count you're not really Jewish and so it becomes this hurdle that people have to get over for all kinds of reasons um and it can like I think what the film really brought out for me was just how like this is someone who does have a like deep connection to Judaism and feels very Jewish but was having to do this stuff that felt really yucky and unnatural to her to prove her Judaism to other people. Um, and I don't know, I just, it felt depressing <laughs> to me. Um, I mean, important. I'm really glad I watched it and I thought that I like learned some things and thought about things in a new way, but I definitely was like, Oh, this process is terrible. Well, I, I, I loved it. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, but it was like the perfect amount of time too. I want to say it was like maybe a 40 minute film and that, I thought that was great. There should be more 40 minute films out there <laughs> in the world. Um, and, 
and it it was beautifully shot. Um, I loved the very real to life, for my experience at least, way that um, that that these really tough conversations that are happening within the couple sort of they ebb and flow, and you watch the conversation happen while they're cooking dinner or while they're sitting on their um, balcony, but then they're distracted by a bird up above or something. Um, it felt, you know, in, in a way that a lot of indie films can, but it felt very honest um, and unscripted. Um, I think also if you have, my, my Hebrew level is very poor, um, but I found this the Hebrew in this to be pretty accessible, and I I, I enjoyed that part of it. Um, so I liked a lot about it. Totally agree with Tamar that Erez is just not a good supportive partner. Um, but I thought that the ways that he was not supportive to me brought up a lot of interesting. Um, hurdles around conversion and in particular around a woman's experience converting for her male partner because there was um, at one point there was discussion of Eris would go back and forth like I really don't care convert don't convert I don't care but then he would talk about well his father cares for not for for Manya but for their children and there's this guilt or this burden placed on the woman in the relationship because her children's status is determined by her. Um, and that's very real. And and he, he gets to be ambivalent about it um, and, and passive aggressive too, because so much of this is about a woman's status in the partnership. Yeah, and you know, what that brings up, there are a few things that brings up for me, but first of all, I think that to me it's clear that even if they weren't in Israel, if it was this set of people, she'd be converting for him anywhere, right? Tamar, you said that this is about how sort of Israel hangs your Jewishness over your head, and it does in a lot of ways, but I think in this particular case, it feels like it's far more important for her to be converting so that he'll accept her and that his family will accept her than it is that the the country will accept her. You know, this is this is not a couple that would ever consider hopping a plane to Cyprus and getting a civil marriage, or at least he is not a person that would do that. Um, and so, you know, Mimi, like you're saying, he wields a lot of power and, and sort of he can reserve the right to this ambivalence because the consequences for him are so much lower. Um, than they are for her. But fundamentally, this movie for me turned into a movie about how she was having an experience, like a tangible experience in the world, but that it was creating this emotional crisis for him. That her experience of questioning, like, does this have value? Why am I not having an emotional experience with this? Why am I not having a spiritual connection? Why am I doing this if we're not committing to all the practice? That those forced him to confront those questions about this religious identity that he had always been able to sort of take for granted as ambient noise in his life, maybe. Um, And 
her needing to be active about it forced him to look in a religious mirror in a way that made him deeply uncomfortable. And I think, you know, the the movie shows some extremely tense moments in their relationship, I think because this created a lot of internal tension in him personally. Right. There. It felt like what I, I felt like what I was seeing in a way was racism. Um, like he, he seemed like he was really looking down on her for being Russian and in um, devaluing her because she was Russian. Like there were several scenes where like, you know, she, she would like speak with an accent and he would kind of make fun of her um, or she like wouldn't know what something meant. And he, um, he, and she was like struggling to read some prayers and, and he was kind of mocking her in a way that just felt to me like not, not like a loving tease from someone who you like feel safe with, but somebody who like genuinely feels that you are less than because of where you're from. Um, and that I didn't expect to see that in this film. And it was like, pretty shocking and sad and also like honestly was interesting because I haven't really thought about this in a long long time but I grew up grew up going to Jewish day schools and because of how old I am like when I was starting in like second or third grade we always had like a few Russian kids um who were joining our our grade and um there was a lot of stigma like they didn't for the most part, we really didn't, like, they did not assimilate into the rest of the class. Um, and there was a lot of nastiness that I really, like, think back on with a lot of regret. I don't think I did anything personally, but it was just, like, not a welcoming environment. Um, and it's interesting to see that play out in, like, an adult relationship where you would think that that wouldn't be a factor, but it seems like it really is. Um and I think it's that that feeling is also related to the to to the conversion that like the he claims that he doesn't care about it, but obviously he does. Um, and and, you know, saying like, well, I don't care about it, but my parents really care about it is like, well, you can decide to not care about something that your parents care about. Like everybody does that about some things in their life. And if you want to do that about this you're a big boy, you can do it. And if you don't, that's because it's important to you too. And you need to own that. And you need to like, if you're going to make your partner go through this like really intense, like weird psychological and spiritual experience, you need to be there for her and not be making fun of her for not already being the thing that you just happened to be born as. Um, like, it, I don't know, to me, there was just like a lot a lot in that um and that was kind of what made it upsetting to watch this film intersected with some interesting conversations i'm having with my um ukrainian jewish coworker about the experience of for her coming to america and discovering rediscovering the judaism that had been in her family for generations um and i just wanted to highlight one moment that where Manya is having a conversation with her mother um, 
and her mother is sharing some photos and stories about previous generations of their family and talks about, you know, um, this, this family member kept kosher, this family member lit the candles on Shabbat, this family member, this, this. When do, when do we get to be Jewish? When will, when will we be Jewish enough? When will we be considered one of you? It, though we've been calling ourselves Jewish for generations. And I think there's something really unjust that rubs me so the wrong way about um, making people, and, and this is part of my own personal story, but making people jump through hoops to prove what they've already been forced to prove through their actions, um, but then making us go through potentially a dehumanizing ritual, which is in the end what Manya has to go through. Right. Well, I also think that like that the ritual of going to the mikvah is is dehumanizing if like all of the things leading up to it have been dehumanizing. Um, and like, I mean, whatever. I am not somebody who really finds going to the mikvah to be a powerful experience. I'm not a big fan. But like, it doesn't, it's not upsetting to me. And there are, there are ways that it can be, um, you know, kind of a neutral experience, even if it doesn't kind of feel like a revelation. But if all of the pieces of the conversion process leading up to that point have been negative and stigmatizing and ostracizing, then, you know, getting naked is probably in a like room full of strangers is probably not going to like make you feel super welcome and bathed in the love of God. I mean, fundamentally, you know, maybe, maybe I have to fill the Orthodox lot for just a second and, and say that like, it's, it's hard for me. It, it's hard for me to reject the importance of the technicality here, right? Like the, in that conversation with her mother, which is a really powerful conversation, they're saying not only that our families had this history of Jewish practice, but one of the things her mother says is, the women in our family have been marrying Jewish men for generations. We've been having Jewish families for generations. When is that enough? And there's a degree to which that makes absolute intuitive sense and yet is not enough. On, on the other hand, that is not sufficient reason to dismiss the things about her family that are Jewish in important ways. So there's a scene, so it might be insufficient, but that, but it doesn't invalidate the rest of it. So th there's a scene where she's talking about family history where, um, where if I'm remembering correctly, her grandmother or great-grandmother winds up saving two Jewish children during World War II. And she's talking about this bargain that she struck with this soldier who was uh, giving them some food to save them from starving. And she says, oh, you know, she bargained and she got potato peels and cow's blood. And she's talking about this very important story of Jewish commitment in her family where saving a fellow Jew was something of vital dedication and importance and Erez interrupts her to say you know cow's blood isn't kosher right and in that moment you want to slap him because technicalities do matter but they are not the only thing that matter 
Um, and and that's what he's and that's what he's missing here in this really pivotal way. I I mean, look, obviously, well, there I mean, I mean there are ways that you can say to someone like, I believe that you're Jewish, but there's this hurdle that we have, which is like it has to count to the right people. And so we just need to like clear this because because that's how the system works that is like respectful of the fact that like it's a technicality or like it's a you know it's it's just a thing that we have to do and doesn't make it seem like he's very clearly like I don't think you're Jewish and I think that that in a way like pushes her away doesn't make her you know it makes the whole process seem like you know devaluing of her identity which clearly is as Jewish and she keeps have to be she keeps having to say like I'm not Jewish but I feel and it's like well what I mean at, at a certain point like you you're gonna do the thing but like you you clearly already feel Jewish like it's okay to own that Well, just to talk about the movie as a movie for a second. So, you know, Mimi, I agree with you that it feels very authentic. There's also, there's like almost no um, music in the movie. It, it's not staged very much. Um, and I mean, I do think that it's a failing of the movie that we don't have a good foundational sense of why these two people are together um, before we're shown the most stressful thing that's happening to them. I mean, in the beginning, the movie is called Nishikotbi Ivrit Hebrew Kisses, and the beginning starts with these very, like, loud, lip-smacky kiss noises where you, like, see Erez and Manya sort of cuddling and him kissing her, and it feels like that opening two-minute sequence in which they kiss a lot is supposed to sort of stand in for for a uh, relationship foundation, and I do think that's a weakness of the movie um, that is otherwise pretty strong. Um but, you know, we discovered this movie because um, there was an article about it in the Israeli Daily Haaretz. And that article, um, the headline on the article is a quote from Manya as she's being interviewed. I don't believe it's from the movie. It, the quote is, the Orthodox conversion was purely bureaucratic with nothing behind it. And that I felt was quite misleading. It led me to believe that the movie was going to be primarily about her rabbinate experience and that if you could say that the movie had a villain, that the villain was going to be the, the bureaucracy. And I was, like I said, surprised and pleased to find out that it was more intimate than that. And it was really about the dynamic within their relationship, which I did really find interesting. Yeah, but, but it just meant that the villain was her fiance. <laughs> <laughs> which is so much sadder. Like, we can all get with the Israeli, well, maybe we can't, but I can get with the Israeli wrapping it as villain. I wonder how this film and how this couple's um, how their journey would be different in the states. Um, you know what what is the process look like in the states, and is there more of a human element? Well, it depends. Here. Do you care if your conversion will be uh, accepted by by the rabbinate in Israel? Because if you do, then the list of rabbis who can do those conversions is pretty short. Um, and if you don't, then it's kind of, then you have more options. But, um, you know, that's, 
the problem is like if you are a woman and you decide to have an orthodox conversion but not with one of the rabbis who is accepted by the rabbinate and that the list of rabbis who are accepted by the rabbinate has changed several times in the last decade i think um then you you know if you make your decision you are also having to think about like well what what are the implications of this for my children um it's just like a whole complicated thing well go out and see it if it comes to a film festival near you like mimi said this is about a 40 minute movie um and totally worth the time and more um definitely a great conversation starter yeah i really liked it agreed all right should we endorse absolutely yeah so my endorsement in honor of our uh, first segment on Ashkenazi food um, is going to be the only story, I think, about the 2016 election that made me smile, um, which is that um, in late 2015, one of the email hacks of Hillary Clinton's email account um, produced an email that I would like to share with you guys, um, and I encountered it via a story in the Washington Post. The uh, email was from Hillary Clinton, to, to, uh, sent to two State Department officials. Subject line, gefilte fish. Entire email text, where are we on this? So <laughs> when reporters encountered this email, uh, this sparked a detective hunt uh, for what on earth this gefilte fish email is about um, and I am going to uh, and there is a lengthy article that explains for those who are unfamiliar what gefilte fish is um, and it's not complimentary um, but <laughs> the uh, the story uh gets uncovered um, by, I believe, Yetyer Rosenberg and Tablet Magazine uh, as connected to a story in the memoir of Michael Oren, who was at the time the Israeli ambassador to the United States. Um, so the story is about this congressman um, who, comes to, uh, who comes to Michael Oren uh, very exercised about the fact that there was some kind of trade difficulty. So America signed its first ever tr free trade agreement with Israel back in 1985, but the treaty exempted certain Israeli products that were liable to be eradicated by their cheaper American counterparts. All this is a quote from the Michael Oren memoir. Um, apples, avocados, and oranges fell into this category, and so too did the carp cultivated by Galilean farmers. And because of this exemption, 400,000 pounds of the frozen Illinois carp were being denied entry into the promised land. Um, and so there was a diplomatic crisis. And Shonda. Congressman Manzullo of Illinois was ramping up the pressure, working with the State Department. Uh, you think finding Middle East peace is hard? Secretary of State Clint Clinton blithely told reporters, I'm dealing with carp. Netanyahu called Michael Oren and says, what's all this carp stuff? There's this major diplomatic crisis over carp. Days of effort passed before a compromise was achieved. On a one-time, non-precedented basis, nine containers of carp were unloaded in Israeli ports. And at the end of the story, Congressman Manzullo calls up the ambassador and says, why do you Israelis need so much carp? He had no idea that it was for gefilte fish. All of this took place shortly before Pesach, when gefilte fish is, of course, uh, at its highest consumption levels of the year. Um, and thus we have my favorite email of the Hillary Clinton email dump, 
Subject line, gefilte fish. So I will share the uh, Washington Post story in the show notes. That is such so great. a great story. This is the second time I've heard you tell this story, and it's still just <laughs> so funny. Um, all right. Mimi, what are you going to endorse? All right. Um, so also on the foodie kick, um, I want to endorse um, from a cookbook that Tamar recently um discussed, I want to endorse the Rosemary Garlic Challah from Modern Jewish Baker, a book by Shannon Sarna. Um, this book was pretty hilarious because there are like probably five foods <laughs> in it, <laughs> babka, bagels, challah, and I don't think I'm missing anything. Um, maybe a few other dishes, but the some of the challah recipes are really delicious. So Rosemary Garlic, I will include that in the show notes. Um, I also wanted to endorse um, a reading list that I have been making my way through and am really enjoying. Um, it's on the website Hey Alma, and the reading list is seven, is seven female Israeli writers you should be reading. Um, I am currently um, making my way through Dearest Anne, and really enjoying this entire list. Um, one of the things that I like about it is that the authors are all Israeli women, but the stories are not all about Israel. They're not rife with, you know, political drama necessarily. Um, and yeah, I I always love a good curated list for summertime vacation reads. Um, and this one uh, holds holds that that tradition for me. Hmm. I have to check that out. Um, I want to endorse a book that I read this weekend. It's called Lucky Broken Girl by Ruth Behar. It's a young adult novel, um, but it works. It's not like treacly or anything. You could read it as an adult. Um, and it is about a Jewish family that moves from um, Havana to Queens in the 60s um, and they uh, they live in Queens they're like pretty poor um, and kind of trying to make it and the um, the main character is the older daughter in this family and she they get into a car accident and she breaks her legs and she has to be in a body cast um, for almost a year and so the book is really about her like year of just having to be in a body cast and then kind of what that, what that was like. Um, but it's, it's beautifully done. It's really a, a poignant, very well-written book. And I love it because it has, it's very Cuban. Like they talk a lot about Cu living in Cuba and Cuban customs, but also like she grew up in Cuba, her parents grew up in Cuba, but her grandparents are from Poland. Um, and so her, she also is very Ashkenazi. Um, and so it was just like a very cool combination and a community that I know exists. I have a couple of friends who are, uh, Jubana as they say. Um, but not, you know, I think I only know two. Um, and so it was, it was really cool to read this, this book. And I think that the book is actually based um, on Ruth Behar's um, 
actual experience as a child. Um, and she's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner and just a, a cool person. So I really, really endorse this book. And um, also there's like a lot of discussion of delicious food in it, both Cuban and Ashkenazi. So um, definitely will make you want to go into the kitchen and, and get started on that food. Awesome. That sounds great. Sounds great. All right. Thank you all for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us um, on Apple Podcasts or you could let us know what you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media to find us or on our website, jpmedia.co, and then choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You could also, of course, donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support the show and make sure that we can come back and give you a new show every month. Thank you, Mimi. Thanks, Tamar. Thank you, Zahava. Thank you. It was great seeing you guys. Yeah. See you next month.